All right, you guys, are we ready? We're ready, let's do it. Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna be here 11 times throughout this, this, this Pentecost year, we're calling it, right? Pentecost year, so um, what I'm gonna do, when I, when I got the syllabus, um, Ken and Stephen had already filled out a lot of, maybe what we call like dogmatic issues, right? Like incarnation, Trinity, Holy Church, and so w what I wanna do is kind of punctuate some things and augment some things along the way, so I'll be with you for 11 times. So um, we have three in a row in October, and so we're gonna do reality in Christ, that's pretty ambitious, right? <laughs> so let's see what we can do about reality in Christ. But how I want to take it is um, knowledge of God. When I'm thinking about reality of Christ, I'm thinking about knowledge of God. What does it mean, what does it mean to know God, and how do we know God? Um, what does it mean to know humanity? What it, what it means to be authentically human, and what it means to see, savor, love, care for other human beings in authentic ways. Uh, how, do, how, do we, how do we live into humanity? Um, that too is a Christological question, a Christologically conditioned issue. And then the world. How do we live in the world? What do we make of the world? How do, how do we discern the world, right? Um, in one way, it's like asking fish um, what it feels like to be wet, to live in the world. What does the world mean? What is the purpose of the world? What is the telos of the world? And how do we enjoy um, all things in Christ and Christ in all things, like you know, Charles Simeon says, that's the, that's the chief um, skill of the art of the Christian life, is to enjoy Christ in all things and all things in Christ. So the world, too, is a Christologically conditioned reality. So let me start right on page one. Um, by the way, um, I love dialogue, right? So I'm, I'm not, I, this isn't like information download. Think of it more like this. God creates out of dialogue, right? Let us make. He creates for dialogue. Um, that's one of the reason we do, reasons we do catechesis, right? That's why we, we, uh, uh, order of service is liturgical, but also there's something to be said there about um, teaching, which corresponds to the nature of who God is, right? So, so, it, so it goes this way, it's dialogical. So talk, ask, let's do that. Um, let me take a couple minutes right up front on, on the top of page one. We're talking about late modern fragmentation. That's one of the things that characterizes late modernity as its fragmentary reality. And in the context, what we're gonna talk about and situate is Christian formation, right? We could call it Christian, uh, and I'm not trying to be pedantic or annoying, but I, but I wanna make sure we get the Christ there because I think what you, what you probably discern is it, <laughs> the grand counter miracle, right? Uh, our Lord turns water into wine and we, learn how to turn wine back into water. We learn how to talk about Christianity in Christless ways, right? We don't wanna do that. Um, we are Christian people. What does that mean, Christian people? So let's just talk for a minute about some of these salient features which you see, which characterize late modernity, the late modern landscape. <clears throat> and you hear people talking like this, this all the time, right? But this loss of meta-narrative or even doubt in, distrust in any meta-narrative. Um, Meta-narrative, we can just say it like this, this grand overarching story, which includes our stories within it and gives us the hermeneutical wherewithal to interpret and make sense of our own stories so that our life isn't one thing after the other uh, with no motif or no, no particular end to it other than what we can foist upon it, some Nietzschean way or something like that. We're missing that, right? We're missing that. You're, you're seeing we'll talk about this maybe next week, but you're seeing um, some alternatives, 
coming along, right? Some alternative meta-narratives. And if you, if you read modern history, right, it's this grand arching toward justice, this grand arching toward, the grand arch of history is terminating in the word of Revelation 19, right? Um, but we're, we're losing and uh, meta-narrative is falling apart. You have um, the self, or what we, we should probably call the solitary self, as the datum point, the controlling principle, the starting place, right? People start with the self. How do I know all things? Well, I start by, with self-analysis. How do I, how do I what, what controlling principles do I have in place to think about all things as I live? Me, everything relative to me. And we all come about this pretty um, innocently as far as that goes. It's in, the, it's in the air we breathe. You guys know Rene Descartes, right? French philosopher, he comes out of, you know, he's a post-Reformation person. He says, I doubt everything. I have universal skepticism about everything. So what does he do? Right? He doubts all of those ways in which, all those authoritative ways in which he might think about himself. Church, scripture, clergy, <laughs> um, others. So, you know, he isolates himself from all things, right? Climbs into a furnace navel gazes for a while, comes out and says, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. There's the datum, the datum point is right here, my, my frontal matter. Right here is where I start thinking about what it means to be me, what it means for Lydia to be Lydia, what it means for God to be God. So I, I prescribe the conditions under which anything can be true and good. They all start right there. That's with us. Now, how that's morphed over the years is it's not so much for us, I think, therefore I am, because we're not, well, there's all kinds of things going on. For, for us, it's, it's mostly morphed into, I feel, therefore I am, right? So even you think about why, what are some of the big peel-offs um, for moderns, our contemporaries right now from the church? And some of it would be, um, I can't get with um, a biblical sexuality. I feel certain things. Now, we do, right? People do. I feel certain things, therefore, God can only be God insofar as God conforms to the conditions that I've set for God. Otherwise, I have to abandon and reject. Does that make sense? It's right back to the garden stuff, right? Where are you? Well, I'm afraid and I hid and I'm hiding from you. I'm naked. And then that, that wonderful response, who told you you were naked? You might think like, do I really need someone to tell me I'm naked? That's not quite the point. The point is, who told you what it means and how you ought to respond to your nakedness? That's the point, right? Who told you what that means and how you ought to respond to it? Adam responds in self-justification. You vicious, you vicious giver of vicious gifts. Now we're in trouble, right? <laughs> but here, the solitary self as the datum point controlling principle of knowing, and therefore what we get is a proliferation of perspectives. We usually talk, moderns talk not about truth, but perspectives, right? And more and more, endless perspectives without boundary values or value controls on those perspectives, right? Because we root that in the self. Usually it's if I'm sincere enough or if I get angry enough, if you don't agree with me because your disagreement with me is an ontological category now because my, my, my perspective is, is my personhood, we can't touch that, right? So we don't have, we don't have meta-narratives anymore. We have sacrosanct personal narratives. You cannot critique personal narrative, right? That's, that's, that's the unforgivable sin. That's part of our modern context. And then you have something that we might, we might call it something like, a, like <laughs> flat earth secularism. What, what's happened to us is, is heaven's been ripped from earth. 
in the way in, in the way that we've been thinking for the last two or three centuries in, in our culture. Heaven's been ripped from earth. Jesus doesn't come to bring heaven to earth <laughs> and bind heaven to earth. Someone like um, Immanuel Kant, let's say, right? Two-story universe. We don't think in terms of we we've, maybe we can say it like this: we we reduce creation to nature, right? Creation implies creator. We reduce creation to nature, and then we think about nature as this neutral, malleable thing. It's not God-ordered or God-enchanted. It's devoid of God, and it can be anything we want. And so now we think about how we repurpose all things and rename all things as the way we'd want to. But the, but the issue is we live, in, we live in a... If heaven's pulled from earth, and what we've done is we've taken, we've taken earth and we've, we've flattened down the, um, the, maybe the, the vertical horizons of earth, right? And so now what we have is just, we have you know, what Charles Taylor would call, this great writer in the secular age, he says, um, the chief characteristic of secularism is what it does is it takes all claims and all ends and reduces them to mere human flourishing. Whatever you think is good for you, right? So that can be even like, you know, the, the confession of the gospel, why is the gospel good? Because it's got therapeutic ends for me, right? These types of things, so we're flattening down things. And then this Cartesian anxiety, you know, Rene Descartes. Um, it starts with this type of um, dogmatism of doubt. And you guys who are, have fewer years on you than I do, I think that I see this heavily in college students. This idea, um, because who wants to be gullible, by the way? That's not a fruit of the spirit. Right? Who wants to be that? So we kind of go into the world, we doubt everything. Right? That's the posture with which we start. That's Cartesian. It's a dogmatism of doubt. Really what it is is it presents like this, you guys, but what it is is if you flip it over, what it is is because I'm the datum point and controlling principle of all things, everything has to pass muster by my self-analysis. But what that it's a posture of self-lordship. What it does is we're crushed underneath it. So dogmatism of doubt ends in this Cartesian anxiety. People are imploding in our culture for it. Atlas shrugs, right? It's a heavy mantle to be God. <laughs> it's a real heavy mantle. Um, all of these things, like, let, let's, let's contextualize what we're going to talk about for the next um, three weeks right in this context. We're, we're confessing. We get to, us, right? This time, this place, we get to confess Jesus Christ in word and deed in this context. It's full of opportunity, full of it, full of fruit. So what are we saying? What is, what is the message of the gospel the faith once delivered to the saints? Um, God the Son has entered the world as the Son of Man. God, man, male, female, right? World. God the Son enters the world as the Son of Man so that creator, human creature, all of creation gets definitive concrete expression in him. Jesus Christ reveals reality. Not multiple realities or not one reality with all kinds of different aspects to it. One reality discerned and known in him, right, relative to him, but not, even, not just in proximity, but in him. In Jesus Christ, we come to learn what it means that God is God, that we're God's image, and that the world belongs to the Lord, and it's a good thing. That's what we're talking about. Outside of that, any way that you might look at the world that doesn't see and savor all things in Jesus Christ, um, what we're actually talking about is a, is a, is a constructed world. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a humanly constructed world, um, and it's a virtual reality. And we love virtual reality, don't we? We love it. 
what's really going on is we're abstracting, as it were, all things from that true datum point controlling principle, Jesus Christ, um, the epicenter of all things. We're abstracting that and we're trying to make sense of virtual things. Can't do it. <laughs> Can't do it. By the way, Nietzsche, he knew that. He's a madman. But he said, it's, we're, we're coming under this age of the, you know, the will to power. Just foist meaning on things because they don't have it. And whoever's got more power wins. And that's why, that's why moderns are power infatuated. Right. It's one of the things. It's a lobbyist heyday. So let me do this. Um, let me, let me, I want to I talk through um, uh, Colossians chapter 1, or portions of it, this Messiah song. I want to give you a quote from Bonhoeffer and contextualize where we're going. Hear the word of the Lord, right? Paul, Colossians 1. He says, he, that is Jesus Christ, is the image, as Bishop just prayed, the icon of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is the sacrament of God. Jesus Christ is the sacrament of God. Now notice this. We're not talking about the eternal second person of the Trinity here. We're talking about the eternal second person of the Trinity, born of a woman, the incarnate one. It's really important. He, of course, he is the image of the invisible God. He, now this is fun. This is next week's stuff. He's the firstborn of creation. You might think we'd say, well, Adam's the firstborn of creation, or are we talking about the eternally begotten Son pre-incarnate? No, no, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of creation. Right? He is. We can only discern our humanity in him. All things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created through him, for him. Yay. Who's the first human recipient of all things? Receives them, offers them to his father in his priestly office, and then gives us a share in them. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the datum point controlling principle for the new humanity in him, us. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell Colossians 2.9, you got, you know, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. The language is strained, right? Apostolic whole fullness, right? Whole, it sounds odd, right? It's the tautism, the whole fullness, the whole of God. We don't have a, a, a perspective on God in Jesus Christ. We have an encounter with the, with the holy God, Yahweh in Jesus Christ. And then I, I've got you an ellipsis here. We're going to chapter 2 where Paul starts to end this, but he says this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, Colossians, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, Church of the Resurrection, Gregory House, October 3rd, right? Us. What's the struggle? What's the apostolic outcome? That their hearts may be encouraged, full of courage. You have courage in your bones. Being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, right? Um, what, what characterizes a, a, a disciple of Jesus Christ? Um, holy boldness, right? Holy swagger, not, not presumption or, any, or, or, or nothing like that. Holy boldness, right? He's risen indeed, the maker of all things. Full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. That is such an 
fantastic phrase, knowledge of mystery. Mystery, biblically speaking, isn't something that shuts our mouth, right? We don't stop talking. Um, it doesn't close off our mind, you know, empty your mind, right? What, what can you do uh, in, in light of mystery except do that? Mystery in Scripture is revealed. Mystery in Scripture is known. The mystery, Paul says, which is, who is, Christ, right? Jesus Christ himself is the mystery. He does, he's not showing us a mystery like I am the way to a mystery beyond myself. I am, right? I am the mystery um, of all reality in whom, Paul says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid and now manifest in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want you to live into um, and be encouraged and have full assurance to understand those mysteries which give light to all things but remain inscrutable, right? He's not a tame lion. We, don't, we can't domesticate our Lord. He's always the Lord. We don't, we don't foist upon him the conditions under which he can be Lord. We're ridding ourselves of self-lordship there, and he is that one. So I have all understanding there. Um, let me give you a Bonhoeffer quote. Let me talk for like five more minutes. I'll stop. I want to sip my coffee in here from you guys. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. He's playing off this, but it's so fantastic. The reality of God is not just another idea, meaning this. God, knowledge of God doesn't start in your frontal lobe. Knowledge of God doesn't begin with you staring at the beautiful sunset, however beautiful it is. It's not where knowledge of God starts. Knowledge of God isn't a concept. We talk like that all the time. I'm here to talk about the concept of the incarnation. No, <laughs> the reality of the incarnation. Christian faith perceives this in the fact that the reality of God has revealed himself. I'm going I'm to edit Bonhoeffer as we go and witness to himself in the middle of the real world. In Jesus Christ, italis is his. The reality of God has entered the reality of this world. The place where the questions about the reality of God and the reality of the world are answered at the same time and the answer is characterized solely by the name Jesus Christ. Solely by the name Jesus Christ. So hear this. What Bonhoeffer isn't saying is um, this kind of reductionistic thing, right? Where, you know, the answer is Jesus. What's the question? Right? Not that. He's saying in Jesus Christ, the whole, the very triune life of God opens up to us. What it means for us to be human, which is glorious, opens up to us the world from beginning to end and on into that world without end, all of it enclosed in the name Jesus Christ. God and the world are enclosed in this name. We cannot speak rightly of either God or the world without speaking of Jesus Christ. All concepts of reality that ignore Jesus Christ are abstractions, aptuptus, right? It, um, to pull from that which is real and to have some vacuous virtual thing with no substance to it. So you can't do that. There aren't two realities, or many, but one reality. God's reality revealed in Christ and the reality of the world. The reality of Christ embraces the reality of the world in himself, and therefore the world has no reality independent of God's revelation in Christ. Meaning this, we can't look at the world and move from the world to God. We have to see Jesus Christ as he reveals the world to us. It's a denial of God's revelation in Jesus Christ to wish to be Christian 
without being worldly, meaning this, to, fl to flee from the world, to have communion with Jesus Christ, who of course also isn't in the world, right? We do that all, he's talking more of like a European Kantian way, but we do it even in ways like this, you know, like someday you'll meet, someday you'll meet Jesus. It's kind of like bumper sticker stuff, right? So you better settle with Jesus now and then get back to the real world where Jesus is irrelevant and you'll never meet him. You, know, you get what I'm saying? None of that, none of that. You can't be Christian without being worldly. If you try to say, grab hold of Christ by flight from the world, you forfeit the world and you miss, you, your Christ is, is vacuous. That's not who Jesus Christ is. <clears throat> or to wish to be worldly without seeing and recognizing the world in Christ. Meaning if you reject Jesus Christ to lay hold of the world, you not only forfeit Jesus Christ, but the world just goes right through your fingers because the world can't be had that way. It can only be had in Jesus Christ. Hence there aren't two realms, but only one realm of the Christ reality in which the reality of God and the reality of the world are united. So that's what we're gonna be talking about for three weeks. I hope that's a good topic. <laughs> the apostolic faith, I'm over on the next page, says this, when, when, when the church is sane and sober, right, and, and, and hearing her Lord and rejoicing in him, what do, we, what do we confess? That Jesus Christ is the logos, right, the word. He is, I'll get into this more in a minute, but word, right, it means, it means logos means reason, that's how we translate word into English, it means reason, uh, it means wisdom, it means logic. Everything has a logic, right? Everything, by the way, even things that are absurd, like the logic of substance abuse, the logic of the terrorist. There's a logic, it's not the one you want to imbibe, but there's a logic to it. It makes sense to people. What makes sense, if you can say it like that, of God, the logos? What makes sense of us? Do we, have a log do we have a logic that's alien from God and contrary to God that makes sense of us but then alienates us from the logic of God? No, no. The logic of God is the logic of humanity. The logic of God is the logic of the world. Jesus Christ is the logos of all reality. So I just give you a couple quotes here because these are the things we're going to be talking about. Today we'll hit this one. The great um, uh, Russian Orthodox theologian Vladimir Lasky says this, all that we know of the Trinity we know through the incarnation. Who puts the blessed name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on our lips and in our hearts? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. It's, we don't sit and speculate about the Trinity and arrive there. Jesus Christ opens up the life of God in himself. We learn, we learn that holy name. Not three names, one name. Father, Son, and Spirit in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> A couple of quotes from Calvin. This is the kind of thing we'll be talking about, focusing on next week. He says it's certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. So we would say something, you know, in terms of God's life, we see the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Calvin says, right, and just the same, you discern your authentically human face, authentically human face, not in the mirror or in your culture or anything like that. You wanna engage in your culture, but you don't wanna draw your identity there. You discern your human face in the face of Jesus Christ, your authentically human one. But Calvin says, even there, we don't contemplate him 
There, that'll blow some of your categories. Maybe Calvin's talking about contemplation. Contem Calvin, the contemplative theologian. We don't contemplate God from afar, he says. Because we put on Christ there and grafted into his body because he deigns to make us one with him. So think about that. If it were the case, and we've all done this, right? He's teaching us how to think. The Christ who is chronologically and geographically utterly isolated from me, the Christ who I can never touch and who never touches me, one day he will, right? But he doesn't now. Then what that does for us is it, is it, tell, it, it, it causes us to think about a Christ who is contrary to the Christ of Holy Scripture. You must abide in me. I will be in you. You will be in me. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be closer than a brother to you. Right, this one. Calvin says, the Christ that's afar off is a false Christ. And if that's the Christ you're thinking about, then the only, the only self you'll ever discern from that false Christ is a false self. Does that make sense? Now think about this. Now think what this means for the body. If I'm trying to discern Madeline, I can only discern her in Jesus Christ. Right? Not only my human face, but the, but the authentic human face of a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, my first step toward Madeline is a misstep. I've fundamentally misunderstood who she is because who she is is a daughter of God in Jesus Christ. It has everything to do with the gospel. <laughs> everything. <clears throat> and then Shmeman. That's what we'll talk about. We talk about the world. He said it's only in worship that we have the source and the possibility of that knowledge, which is communion, and that communion that fulfills itself in knowledge. Knowledge of God and therefore, you see that? And therefore, knowledge of the world. Not knowledge of the world that terminates in knowledge of God. God's not an implicate of the world. It's quite the other way around. Communion with God and therefore communion with all that exists. That's what we're gonna talk about in week three. And all along the way, you guys, how about this? Let's do some of this too, let's do some What? Deconstructing of mythology. Hans Urs von Balthasar, great Roman Catholic theologian of the 20th century, he says, myth is unmasked by the word of God. Here, of course, he's, he's talking about the incarnate one. The incarnate one of apostolic witness, that one. What does he mean? Modernity tends to think, gosh, we need to demythologize the Bible, right? I mean, obviously, the, the hermeneutic that you want to think about God with is your culture you know God's always conforming to culture and we're always arriving. <clears throat> so what we need to do, would say some is you demythologize the Bible. All those crude, vague, you know, pre-modern, crusty ways that scripture talks about everything, you gotta, you gotta grow up past that. Von Balthasar says, um, no. <laughs> um, actually, our modern landscape's full of myth, right? It's the word demythologizes modernity. Modernity is a mythic modernity. It needs to be demythologized. It needs God to do holy violence to it. Shake it loose and free from its own delusions, right? Who does that? The word. The word does that. <clears throat> so let me stop there. I want to press in now and start talking about um, the reality of God. What do you guys want to say so far? How much of this do you think needs to be made explicit in conversation with people and how much is under the surface just in our minds as we dialogue and do we challenge epistemological frameworks of people in these ways? Or? Um, 
I, I think given uh, a lot of it depends on context. It's not contextually driven, but let me say, maybe say something like this. Um, I think you love and care for um, people who are unchristian, non-Christian people. Um, and I think what the transcendent truths, right? Truth, goodness, beauty. I think our culture is beauty starved and clo but closed down to truth. So I think what you do is you love and care for people in the truth, right? Who is God? God is love, God is true. So you, 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 don't, you can't rip those apart or else you're, you're not actually being faithful. Um, but you care for and love people. Um, in the church, I think this is where that, start, that type of thing starts to happen. These things get, get broken down. So take Paul, for instance, we just looked at Corinth. Well, what does Paul do in the world? He proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does he do in the church? He says, I want your understanding to come to full assurance in the Christ reality. So this is the place that happens, I think, here. But for us, yeah, I, I think that there needs to be, you can say it like this, um, Bonhoeffer. He says, anytime um, God comes near to humanity and we have, a, we have a, an encounter with the word, he says, one of two things has to happen. Christ has to die, or you have to die, or we have to die. Um, now think about it. Think about all the piety, right? God, where are you? Come near. What happens when God comes near in Jesus Christ? Good Friday, right? <laughs> That's what happens. Um, would that happen now? Like Bishop was talking, that's just, oh, those people. No way, no way. Um, that's what happens because he exposes something. You either repent, right, and you die with him and rise with him or you seek to kill him. Bonhoeffer says that happens all the time now. Anytime there's a, an encounter with Jesus Christ, he wants to make his on, the ongoing power of his death and resurrection at work in us. So when we're confronted with Jesus Christ, we either have to say, yes and amen or we have to say let me try to reinvent you how can i evade you and resist you here how can i rename you and repurpose you to something else as an exercise of my own self-lordship and so bonhoeffer says and so christ goes through the ages misunderstood questioned anew and again and again betrayed by the kiss <laughs> right um something really wonderful there um and scary too so in, in the church, I think we need to betake ourselves right here and say, what, what is it? Gosh, how do I live into that reality um, that, that all, of, all of my ways in which I can think, which are holy and healing for myself and the other, has to, has to be regrounded in Jesus Christ? Um, yeah, just highly, highly nuanced and complex, we want to say. Maybe, maybe we can get at it like this. There's a difference between, let's say, a theology of nature and natural theology. So think about Psalm 19, for instance. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? So should we be like this? We're going to talk more about that. The heavens actually, you know what the heavens actually declare? That the Father loves the Son the communion of the spirit and all the world is brought into the life-giving joy of God. Um, 
when you think about the psalmist, what is he doing? That's Psalm 19, I guess like one through four. By the time he's in verse seven, he's saying this, the precepts of the Lord are good. The law of the Lord is holy. So what he's doing is he's, he's a recipient of the Red Sea and Sinai. He's meditating on Torah, right? And he's got the, the spectacles of scripture, or the, the spectacles of the word of God written. And he's looking at the world that way. And he's saying that. Now look at Romans 1. Jews, you sin. This is Paul's argument, right? Jews, you sin with the law. Gentiles, you sin without the law, right? So all our forebears, wherever they're from, you know, mine would be from Sweden and Britain. They're out rowing in fjords. And they're saying, whoa, if you've ever seen a fjord, they're gorgeous. Are they saying, praise be to you, Father, Son, and Spirit? They're saying, praise be to you, Odin and Thor. So it's something different. They can't read God off the face of creation. What Paul's saying is, what that's doing is it's actually exposing something broken in you. You don't know how to, how to extract creator from creation, so you worship the creation, right? Therefore, I'm going to proclaim Jesus Christ to you. Where, where moderns mix that up is, boy, we're getting dicey. We, we'll tend to read that and say, well, can't you just read God off of the sunny, the starry, starry night? No, no way. No way. Now, knowing God, right, knowing God, can you, um, does God give the world back to us? So now you can say, all things beautiful. Or as Lewis says, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the rising sun, for by it, I, I see all things. Does that make sense? So it's an order there. It's an order. By the way, insofar as modern Christians are being less and less Christian, that becomes a bigger thing. Why don't you just come to know God from looking at the world? That's paganism, right? How many mediators are there between God and man? One. Is it your frontal lobe? Is it your belly button? Is it history, by the way? Is it science? Right? And I love history and science, but you've got to let them be what they are. If you try to make them mediators, you actually denature the craft. It's not true science, it's false science. There's one mediator between God and man. Mm -hmm. Think about the Apostles' Creed. What do we say? I believe in God the Father, comma, maker. Father to maker. We don't go from creation to creator and then try to get to father. We go from son to father and then the creation opens up for us. Why we have that in the Apostles' Creed is because Athanasius used to say to Arius, you don't start with the works of God and end up with the, um, with the unmoved mover type of God. You start with the Son and you learn to call God Father. Now when you do that, now the world is opened up to you. <clears throat> Let's press in. To begin at the beginning, yet understand backwards. That's what we do. And I give you a Kierkegaard quote here, right? We only understand life backwards, but you must live it forward. Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? Mm -hmm. That's true of so much of our life. But now think, put your life then in this meta-narrative of scripture. Genesis, right? The life of Israel. Does Israel come to full understanding of her life backwards, even as she lives it forwards? And then Jesus took the two on the Emmaus road and he started to tell them about the law and the prophets and all the law and the prophets reveal him. What, <laughs> right? What? Who shines light on the, on the Older Testament? Jesus. 
in whom all things hold together and he is preeminent in all things. Does that include the Bible? <laughs> Who holds Old and New Testament together? Who's preeminent in all things? Jesus Christ, right? That being the case, let's think about the word that way. I give you a couple of biblical texts and you'll see it right away. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and waters were over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering, brooding over the face of the waters. And then out it comes, right? Let there be light. And by the way, life, right? Genesis. So what we have in Genesis is um, a, a creation narrative of the world. We have what, what you'll see, human beings made in the image of God, Genesis. Now, can, do we come to a full understanding of what, it, what the world means in Genesis or what it means to bear God's image in Genesis? We do not. We see true things. We don't see full things. We need, we need a lot more. So now when you start to read scripture canonically, what do we see? All things were made by him and through him and for him and apart from him. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn of all creation, right? We're living forward and we're understanding backward. That's true of a whole biblical narrative. It's true of us too. It's true of our, the events of your life are not, we might say like naked. The meaning of the occurrences of your life don't just reveal meaning right away. You gotta sit in it. Is that applause? <laughs> oh, I'm like, what is happening down there? Um, now, so look at this. I give you Genesis 1. Now look at John 1, right? John the eagle. Look at the language. You think this is intentional? In the beginning. That's the way John's gospel starts. How does Genesis start? In the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, not anything made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Let there be light. What light? What life? Through whom? By whom? Right? This is what we're seeing. Before creaturely existence, before the creation of time. And that might sound, this is like, seriously, we want to think about that? Yeah, because it's the gospel. I'll show you in just a minute. Before time itself, time is, time is created. Right? Time is a creature. There was the eternal, uncreated life and light who is God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and that is glorious, right? And the second person of the Trinity was the Word in the bosom of the Father forever. This Word that's in the bosom of the Father isn't some impersonal abstraction. It's not an idea, right? The idea, it's not some vague utterance. It's personal Word, Lagos. So, right, when we, when we start to read, the, and the word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah, it's not some, imper wait, I'm getting an intuition. Some, so God's beaming a light to me. Whose word? What word? What word is on, the, is on the... Now, the that word who is forever in the bosom of the Father is the, is the person, right? The eternally begotten, eternally beloved Son of the Father. What does that mean? Let's start here. What does that mean about how we think about eternity? Have you guys ever thought about eternity like this? 
eternity. This is the gift of God to you, wants to give you eternal life. Well, what's eternity? It's that impersonal, inexorable, vague thing that goes on and on and on and on and on and it never ends. And you start to think, that's terrifying. <laughs> that's not what eternity is. Eternity is not some um, self-instantiated, um, right, um, life and being in itself, this thing that kind of lays outside God's life. And if God can aspire to it, right, then he can be eternal too. Time is created. What's eternity? It's the way in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have ever been with one another in holy life and love and joy and peace. It's the party that God's life is. So what does Jesus say in John 17, 3? And this is eternal life that you know my Father and the one who he sent, that you come into the sphere of who I have forever been. Father, you've loved me from before the foundation of the earth, right? The peace, the joy, the glory that I have with you, I want to share with them. I want to give them eternal life, which is a, a bringing right into the very sphere of God's blessedness. That's a lot better way to talk about eternity. In other words, you guys, that's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. That's why John starts his gospel talking about eternity, right? And talking about it in that way. And if you go over onto the next page, the Nicene Creed, it's, it's marvelous. It's so doggone wise. This only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all time, light from light, God from God, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same reality, homo of the Father. That's the first thing the church ever got together ecumenically and said, this is what we want to say. Did the, it was the first instance the church got together, did they want to blather on about, you know, abstractions and things like, oh, that's what you wanted to pronounce? You wanted to talk about eternity and the eternal begottenness of the Son? Yeah, because they want to talk about the gospel. <laughs> that's why. So what are we saying? Think about this. Procreation, right? It's, it's procreation's the way in which God says, in your very distinctly human ways, you can participate in the ongoing creation of God, right? According to your kind. It's glorious, right? It's glorious. Procreation is bodily. It happens in time, right? And, it, and, and what the result is, is someone who is actually outside of you. My kids are outside of me. All kinds of bonds, but they're outside of me. Jesus Christ is, there's, we'll talk about what it means that he's the son of Mary, but the word, right? What, what are we talking about now? Begotten. How does the father beget the son? Not timed, not bodily. It's an eternal coming forth um, in, the, in the life of God, an internal action. It doesn't mean that Jesus is now external to God. It happens that he's in the very bosom of the father. Now, why, why is that so important for the gospel? Because as God turns his life out to us, is Jesus Christ the true vision of who God is, or is he a vague approximation? Can God be known or not? It says this, this is what Nicaea is doing. Can, can we actually know God or not? And where is God known, and how is God known? <clears throat> Jesus Christ, or the eternal word, let's say, is forever and ever and ever and ever God's self-expression, right? He's that. Now, what is, when God creates, what does he do? This inner joy of God explodes outward. Let there be light and life. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Hey, that was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs>
wow. <laughs> Think with me about this. Let's, okay, let me ask you this. What if we don't, what if we don't get through all this today? Is that, is that like an unforgivable sin? I want to do as much as we can. I might bleed over a little bit. Think with me about this. Why is this so important to the gospel? What if God were forever a solitary, one-person God? And what did it mean that we say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was in the bosom of the Father, and all things were made by Him? Does that have anything to do with the nature of creation itself and why God would create? Now, can I, can I put a little point on this for you guys? Christians are more and more, I work at Moody, as you guys know, right? We have a missions department. That's a big thing. It's a big thing. I know it's a thing at Wheaton, too. Can't we go into the world and say the triune God of the gospel and Allah are the same? Only if you think God's triune life is um, a throwaway issue, but it's really the very basis of who God is. You work in that all the time, right? Now, all you have, if, you ever want, if you ever need clarity on that, you go ask a Muslim if they think God's the Holy Trinity, and they'll tell you you're nuts. It's Christians that are doing that. Why? Because the world and who God is is discerned in Jesus Christ. Right? This is, don't get me going on that. <laughs> it has everything to do with what we're talking about, right? What if God were Allah, and Allah created all things? What's the difference? Think with me about it. And Allah is love, let's say. Okay, so what kind of love is Allah? What is basic to Allah, the single person God, is that he loves himself, that his love is curved right in upon himself. It's not natural or of his essence to love anything other. He has to create and live into and learn that. It's not basic to him. Allah loves no one but himself. What if, there's a, what if there's a plurality of persons in God's life and the Father's love is always to the beloved and the beloved's love is always a reciprocity to the lover, the unbegotten one, in the holy communion of the spirit of love? Why does God create? God creates because he's love. He doesn't create to love outside of himself. He says, what's, what's going on right here is so awesome. Let us make and let us invite into a participation in what this is. If God's a single person God, he's an eternal narcissist. Does that make sense? Now think about this. Genesis is just a literary masterpiece, right? And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And you just see that cadence, right? By the way, the first pronouncement of humanity, what do they say is good? That, that one thing God said I couldn't have, it's good. I desire it, right? It's supposed to, it's such a stark off, offsetting, but it's good, good, good. And the first negation, this is not good. It's before sin. What? Adam. So one person, Adam, solitary Adam. This is not good. Why? Because Adam can't image God that way. Adam can only image God with another who is one with him, but not the same as him. Now we're starting, and he created them, male and female, together the image of God. Have you ever noticed that Allah has no place for the female? There's a reason for that. It's rooted right in God's life. Right in God's life. <clears throat> okay. 
Okay, I, I have to do this, I think. I think, I think Bishop would be okay. You know, you've run by. Okay, so what, what Genesis is, this is, this is a theological polemic actually going on against other ancient Near Eastern creation narratives, right? It's not the first one, like the Babylonian Enuma Elish is before it, the Egyptian creation narrative is before it. Can I just give you a little glimpse into those? Have you guys ever read the Enuma Elish? It's the Babylonian. And Marduk, right, fell upon Tiamat, the female, and he ripped her to shreds, and he pulled her apart, and he flung her flesh into the abyss, and her blood spilled out, and it became the land and the seas. Do you think that creation narrative flavors the way you think about God and the world? <laughs> now, a little more graphic still, but really important. Apud, the Egyptian creator God. He's a singular God. Do you know how he creates? He masturbates. And he takes the seed and he puts it in his mouth. And, and then the world becomes what it is. That is not who God is. God doesn't create that way. God doesn't procreate in that way, right? Sex is a gift of God, but we can't divinize it either. That's not the way God creates. God creates out of holy communal love. And now, what, is, what does the world throb with? That the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the whole world now is brought into the life-giving, self-giving joy of God. Now think about this even, right? They're in the garden. And a seed falls to the ground, right, to reproduce. What, what's going on there? All of creation is participating in the self-giving love of God. So that now can we see God in creation? Yeah, but you've got to see God. You have to see God in order to see creation. You can't, you can't turn those around. They're not interchangeable. Okay. Do you guys want to talk about anything more there? reality so it's a pretty pretty big topic God is love God is love what is love right you think about first Corinthians love is patient love is kind love doesn't envy love doesn't boast what is the father let, let us create all things through the son so that so that the son might receive all things the father's not jealous of the son the son says, let me be the, re the recipient of all things and offer them back to you in adoration, Holy Father, in the communion of the Spirit, who says, I want to see Jesus Christ glorified and what's going on in the inner life of God. Other-centered, self-giving love, right? In the, in the late Middle Ages, the word here, in the beginning was the word, Erasmus, people like that. They, they translated into Latin, sermo. So he said it means reason, it means wisdom, it means logic. Erasmus, Luther liked to do that too, a sermo, sermon. What were they getting at? In the beginning was the word, was the sermon of God, and God preaches Christ, <laughs> right? It's pretty fun. Now think, think about in the New Testament, I think three times the Father speaks audibly. And you know what he preaches? Christ. There he is. <laughs> the Father preaches Christ in creation and recreation. Jesus Christ, the word, is God's self-expression. Now, what time do we have? Talk on. 
We're not going to finish. We'll, just, we'll keep going. Think about the word with respect to Israel in the Old Testament now, because what we don't want to do, right? We don't want to say, so all things are made by, by, the, by the Son and through the Son and for the Son. And then the Father said to the Son, and the Spirit, by the way, brooding over the waters, you guys, um, I bought you Halo. There's pizza, right, Netflix. I won't need you for a while. I'm just going to kind of walk through the narrative of history from Genesis to Malachi. You fellas, um, son, I'll, I'm going to call your number at Bethlehem. You can come forth in, in spirit. You have even more time, right? Pentecost, you can come on through. But for now, I'll walk through. You know, I'm under, I'm under Darwinian evolutionary processes. The son and spirit are like little, little um, Tyrannosaurus Rex appendages coming off me, and I'm growing into Trinity. God's not becoming Trinity. He is Trinity, right? So what is the word doing in the Old Testament? He's being the word. He's being the one through whom all things were made, right? And bringing God to us. What happens when we break the world wide open in sin and break ourselves? God says, well, I'm holy. I can't have anything to do with that. Now I'm going to go find something else to do. That's ruined, right? Does God retract from a broken world? No, he says, I refuse. Even if it means the breaking of my body in Jesus Christ, I refuse. I will not let the world go, even if it's sin. It's the object of my holy affection. He does not relinquish what he has made and loves to its own dissolution and death. He will not, he does not. The same word that enacts creation, enacts recreation, and he's enacting it all the way through Genesis. It's not coming to the fore, but he's enacting it. So just think with me. We don't have to spend a lot of time here, I don't think, but I want, I want to make sure you see that when I teach at Moody, that this is always the question. You can almost, you can set your watch and you're like, this is, oh, tell me what your question is. And it's, if Jesus is the reality of God, what about the Old Testament? So what they're thinking about is two gods, two Bibles, right? Two internal logics of each one, two salvations, right? And now we're asking like, well, do we even need the Old Testament? Like what's the Old Testament have to do with anything? Fragment, fragmentation, right? <clears throat> Is the word present at Sinai <laughs> and um, the Red Sea and so on and so forth? I give you a couple verses, but we could do, we could do so, so much more. Um, one of them, Bishop preached on just the other day, right? For I do not want you to be unawares that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the Red Sea. Well, what's this? This is, this is, this is um, released from Egypt, right? This is so basic and like an Israelite self-understanding. This is who we are. Okay, when we're thinking about what's basic to who we are, what do we need to think? The word was there, right? We were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. We ate the spiritual food. We drank the spiritual drink. And the rock that followed us was Christ. What? Or First Peter, you know, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched, inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. By whom did the prophets prophesy? What word was on their lips? Does that make sense? I'll show you a couple things. You guys have your scriptures with you? Let's see. What do I want to show you? Let me show you. Let's do Psalm 45. 
Maybe we could say it like this. God is one, right? God is one. Monotheism is basic to the Old Testament. It's punctuated in the New. It's not denied. It's punctuated. But what you see in the Older Testament is you see this complexity in God's, in God's life, right? You see this complexity within monotheism all over the place. Do Psalm 45 and then put your finger in what? Matthew 22 and talk about how Jesus exegetes the Bible, which is a pretty good way to emulate exegesis, right? Seems to me. Okay. Right, I'm in Psalm. No, I'm not. I can do this. Okay. And then Matthew 22. Can I do this? Okay. Oh my goodness, I lied to you guys. Do, um, sorry, do Psalm 110. All right. I just want you, this is a magnificent Psalm, but Psalm of David starts out this way, right? The Lord says to my Lord, sit, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's a, that's a messianic kingdom, it's a, it's a king Psalm, right? So it has uh, immediate application, right? It has immediate context in, in the life of Israel, but its, it's, context, it's, it's meaning isn't exhausted there. Or else we'd be right back to saying, even the Old Testament has a ground in itself and a telos that doesn't terminate in Jesus. Look at Matthew 22, um, verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. That's really cool because we, we tend to think, they did too, that, that God's always on the dock and we're always po posing questions to Jesus. He's actually the one posing questions to us. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he anyway? They said, son of David. That's right. <laughs> Just not the whole of the thing, right? And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, do you see that? In the spirit. David prophesies in the spirit. What is the spirit doing in the life of Israel? He's being, this, he's being who he is. David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I, and there it is, that's the Psalm one. If David then, says our Lord, if David calls him Lord, how is he a son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And that's a pretty cool text, but it gets right at Bonhoeffer's point. They didn't say, let us worship you. They said, he needs to die now, right? He needs to die now. Um, we have questions for you. We're setting the conditions of your lordship. You better meet these conditions or we won't confer lordship on you. But if you try to assert the conditions on us, we're coming after you, right? Again, that's not them and us. It's like Bishop was talking about, that's for us. Do not, do not presume that you can do that. You can't, it's basic to what it means that Jesus is Lord. Um, so what we see, right, through tabernacle, through temple, prophet, priest, king, manna, right, the Red Sea, Sinai, all of this, the word is active in the life of Israel. And if you can, if you can say it like this, right, the, 
the vestiges of his face are starting to be made clear. And Moses is saying, Lord, show me your face. Right? Lord, show me your glory. You can't see my face yet. Yet. And then what do we have? Right out of the life of Israel, the servant of God, right? Israel's got a unique ministry in the world. Right out of the life of Israel emerges Jesus Christ, and we behold the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus embodies as as the eternal word made flesh, not ceasing to be the eternal word, but the, the eternal word coming to the flesh, he embodies the innermost reality of who God is. He's Yahweh. He has ever resided in the bosom of the Father, and now he turns the Father's bosom outward and says, Madeline, enter in. Right? It's awesome. It's so awesome. Whose word has resounded in the depths of the Father's heart? Jesus. Right? What word has resided in the very core and epicenter of God's being? Jesus. Who is turned out to us now? Jesus. John's gospel, right here. You have, we don't need to go there, but, but you know that wonderful prologue. And the word became flesh and skenate, he tabernacled with us, right? So just all Old Testament literary stuff, by the way, the Greek says en, and he skenate, he, he, he tabernacled in us. We translate that among us. Um, we can quibble, but and the Lord um, pitched His tent among us, so on and so forth. And then He starts into all this alliteration, or, or the, the, these looking backs, where He's talking about Torah. Um, we had the law through Moses, right? Um, but this one who tabernacled with us, think about that. What is the tabernacle? This is the this is the presence of God's glory for Israel, right? What's in the very epicenter in the heart of the tabernacle? The 10 words, right? Where do we get the 10 words? Etched, the finger of God, right in the heart, right, right in the holy of holies of the tabernacle, right? And then John says, this one who has ever dwelled in the bosom of God has made him known. What is John doing? He's saying, that tabernacle a temple in Israel's life as they go into the land. In the epicenter is the word there. This is the very glory of God on display. Jesus Christ is manifest the glory of God. Who, who is he? He's the word who has ever dwelled in the holy of holies of God's life, right in the very core and ground of God's being. Turned out to us now. <clears throat> what do you guys want to say? Feel hospitality. You can. Always, I don't. I don't mind at all. Hey, I don't mind at all. I like it. I. I like it. it stimulates me. Yes. 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 
The Bible, so, there's so many layers. They're just amazing. I'll give you another one like that. Upper room discourse, right? So what, what's going on in the upper room discourse? Jesus tells his disciples, I'm leaving. And they're like, are you serious? Are you, are you what, right? Don't worry, I won't leave you orphans, he says. Isn't that interesting? Like, he's not our father. Why would we be an orphan without you? Well, John picks up on this, and to have the son is to have the father. To have the father is to have the son. If I won't leave you Christless and therefore fatherless, I will come to you, right? In a, in a much more, in a, in a, even a better way, yeah. They're saying, we can hardly handle your presence now, right? <laughs> Seriously. Um, but, but then he says, John 14, 6, you know the verse, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Do you know the way Israelites talked about Torah? What is Torah? The way. The truth, the way of God, the truth of God, the life of God, the instruction of God. When Jesus says to them, they're all, they're all Israelites, I am the way and the truth and the life. You know what he's saying? I'm, I'm the embodiment of Torah. We, it, we miss that because we're, you know, I, my Scottish ancestors, you know, we, we miss that. It's, it's, it's not in our framework. Jesus says, I am Torah. That's who I am. I didn't come to reject Torah. I came to fulfill it. I'm the fulfillment of Torah. And I will be in you, <laughs> in the flesh. Make your heart flesh. Um, now, Jesus, okay, you guys, I saw it till 1030. So what I'm doing, I see like a Q&A for 15. We'll just, you can do Q&A anytime you want. But we'll go to 1030, is that right? Okay. Um, the word became flesh. The word didn't cease to be the eternal word and son of God and becoming flesh. The word who is a citizen of heaven is now begotten of Mary, his blessed mother, and as a citizen of the earth. He's the first dual citizen of heaven and earth. What does that mean about the way we think about the world? He's the first one, and in him, we too are dual citizens of heaven and earth. So, so for instance, Paul says, your citizenship is in heaven, but it's not escapism, right? You're not just passing through the earth. Your citizenship is heaven, now engage, right? We'll talk way more about that, but I want you to see that Jesus Christ is begotten eternally of the Father and in time begotten of his mother. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is the Son of Man. He's that one. He fulfills Israelites' mission and calling, right? He fulfills Israelites' mission and calling, and therefore, right, he gathers up the, the generations of Abraham, all the, all, the, all the chronologies in Scripture, that, and he gathers up the generations of Adam. He has saving significance for the whole world first and foremost, because he fulfills Israel's mission to the world. You know what that, you know what that means? This is, this is a theme all the way through scripture. God always works from the one to the many. Through Israel to the nations, through this one person, right? Through this one Jewish person, to every tongue and tribe. You guys, has, have you noticed that what we, we tend to think that like diversity, for instance, is a value in and of itself and for itself, and we always start with diversity and try to get to unity. It doesn't work, it never will. You go from the one to the many. If you try to go for, start from the many, and get, you'll never get to the one. You start from the one, and the one includes the many. Now you can start to talk about the many. We've got, yes, good. One to many seems to be the 
Yeah, and so you can even say this, you know, there's that which is taught very formally, and then there's that which is caught, which is the most of your education, you catch it. And there's that which is learned very formally, and there's that, that the, the, the truth that's lived. You need them both, yeah. but you've got to live the truth in order to learn the truth, right? Um, so that, that's, why it's, that's why we do things like liturgy. So you can catch the truth, things that are, it gets, it's right in your DNA. That's why, by the way, all of culture is very liturgical. We're liturgical creatures. And so you learn what's important, what can I say, what can I say, when should I celebrate, when should I weep, when should I mourn? And you don't usually think, am I being catechized? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the world's always catechizing, right? Always. The world's actually more fastidious about what you can say and what you can't say than the church is, right? So you wanna think about that, right? Um, word and speech gets you right in to the, to the way you think, right? And so the church has always said, the law of praying is the law of believing. How you pray, you'll think. The world does that too. The world says, you will say this and you will not say this. Because if, I, if, if you do that long enough, that's what you will think. You might not now, but you will. Right? Um, you you want to be thinking about these things. Um, can, I, can I piggyback on that for a minute? What do we have in Jesus Christ, or in, in the, the triune God? We have the communal reality of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We have three real personal self-subsistences. Jesus says, I am me, I am I. I am not I over and against the thou-ness of the, the Father and the Spirit. I am I and can only discern my I in the community of the Father and the Spirit. I never come on my own authority. I don't say, I don't proclaim, I don't even propose to know according to anything but the will of my father. Now Freud will say, if you ever want to grow up, you have to reject your family of origins. You've got to reject that. If you ever want to know or self-actualize as a person, you need to flee from everyone else. You get yourself settled and then you engage. I mean, goodness gracious, how did God make the world? Again, creational realities. How many of you asked to be born to your families of origin? <laughs> no one. Um, did God say, why don't you just, you know, saunter around for a bit, check out a few families, see which one you love, and then you can engage. Your place so that you learn to love. You don't learn to love and then engage. You're placed until you learn to, you learn to love. You're placed so that you learn an identity and a community. So what do we have in God? We have three eyes. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son does not know himself apart from the Father. He's the eternal Son of the Father. His self-knowledge is relative to another, right? Now what do we have? We have individuality, which never lends itself to individualism. We have community, which never lends itself to what, collectivism, something like that. Son, you need to go away for the good of the whole. No, no, no. So now what do we talk about? What do we talk about? What, what, what do we talk about all the time? Identity, and what does it mean to be community? about the triune life of God. 
pretty good places. What does it mean to be a real person? Well, God's tri-personal. We should probably start there and discern what it means to be a person. You don't start with yourself or you'll invent and constantly reinvent a false self. You can't find yourself. You can only be found, right? And then discern your findingness in the Lord. If you go off and try to find a false self, you'll just constantly reinvent false selves, right? Because inventing a false self is hard work. It's, uh, amen. Yeah, it just breaks my heart. <laughs> oh, for sure. So, Madeline, how about this? Um, you know, we're talking about the lack of meta narratives. Well, meta narratives are always trying to start. And so, you, you have one now, and you guys all know it. Like, um, I, I want to be so careful. I don't want to nail it too hard because there's some good things. But we talk about like woke movements, right? And social justice movements. Like, like you don't want justice? Like, God doesn't care about that? He does. He does, but what we have in this kind of secular context is we've got, we've got a culture that's haunted by the memory of God, removed from the gospel. We still have some semblance of idea of what it might look like to be just, and we say, why can't we just be good without God? And so you have this, and so what, what, what you have in that kind of culture, and cancel culture and all the things we talk about, is you have a culture that's trying to justify and sanctify itself without the gospel. That is exhausting. That means you constantly have to weigh in on every 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 um, wrong that you ever see, so as to so as to justify and sanctify yourself constantly, rather than freely being made a new creation in Jesus Christ, and then not using not using Christianity in some way to underwrite a movement that you think is actually better than that, but to live into the gospel. Does that make sense? Um, Let's finish this section, eh? Hey, that's not too bad. Let's finish this section and then we'll, we'll, we'll do, I really, want, I really want to get you guys thinking about what it means to see God in Jesus Christ. Well, we might have to wait a little bit about that. I have Chalcedonian definition, right? What it means that Jesus Christ is two natures, one person, his godness or his humanity isn't set asunder, right? He's not, he didn't, didn't used to be God, but now he's human. He, um, he didn't have to throw off his divinity to become, become human. He, the eternal God, took up into his very life humanity without ceasing to be God. That is huge. Now, Vladimir Lasky, I'm right in the middle of, I don't have the page number, section four. He calls this the great scandal of metaphysics. I love that. Um, And that's what it is. You can laud that. Metaphysics are great. Literature's great. Science is great. History's great. They too need sanctified, to be sanctified in Jesus. What he's saying is metaphysics, if they start here, can't, can't prescribe the conditions under which God can be the Logos incarnate. God does not capitulate to that, right? So if you start with some you know, Aristotelian category of, what, of the unmoved mover, the unchanging perfection of God, you, you'll never get to an incarnation. You have to deny it. 
You have to, you have to do something else with it. It's another way yet to, to um, evade the Lord. Jesus Christ participates fully and at one time in the being and life of God and man. Jesus Christ has, bring, has, bring, has brought God right into, the, right into humanity. First in himself. Now we need to receive him, right? First in himself. He's taken the huma our humanity, sanctified it, and brought it right up into the life of God. And Karl Barth would say wonderfully, the deity of God includes the humanity of Jesus. Now, lots of people say, do you really want to say that? Only if you want to preach Jesus and the gospel. Why is that so important? Why, does it, why did the church know that so well? Because what we're saying is Jesus Christ as a true, real, authentic human partakes and participates in the life of God. What is our great hope? Not that you transcend your humanity or you throw it off, but that you as a true and authentic human live into your authentic humanness and partake in the divine nature. Right? That's the way, that's the, way uh, the Apostle Peter says, we're partakers of the divine nature. How are we partakers of the divine nature? Because we partake in Jesus Christ who has come to bring the very life of God, the Zoe life of God, into our existence. If we can't partake in the divine nature, this is what you can do. You can say, I can emulate Jesus. I can say, what did Jesus do? And I can try to do that. Or I can say, well, he's holy. Um, I'll try to be really moral. Categorically different thing. Um, so on and so forth. I can think about the life that Jesus came to bring that can augment and soup up my natural life, my bios life. Or I can say, Jesus came to bring humanity up into the life of God so that by participating in Jesus Christ, I, as an authentic human, I don't get divinized, but as a human, I don't transcend my humanity. I partake in the life of God as a human. That's what we're made for. God made humanity so that we can partake in the life of God. Jesus Christ, now and forever, lives his divine existence in our humanity. Now, for 33 years, forever. Forever, right? When Jesus Christ descends, let's say, right, he, he, takes, he takes our humanity to death and from the grave, and the book of Hebrews says, and he makes a new and living way of access in his body. Where? To the Holy of Holies. What's the Holy of Holies? The bosom of the Father, right? The bosom of the Father in his body. This is, this is all about the gospel, all about the gospel. Now, when you think about that, too, um, we live in a world that's increasingly fatherless, right? Divorce, you know, all the, all the things, all the, all the ways in which the, the world feels, ooh, we're real transient and things like that. Jesus came to make his father known. His father who's good and holy and present, right? He didn't come to make an, make, tell us about an absent father because the sending of the son isn't, a, isn't the father sending the son away from himself. It's the father coming near in the son. Jesus came to make the father known. What is the church and the gospel and the, the life of the church to make the father known in a, in a world that's increasingly fatherless? Right. Um, okay. Can I have? Can I have two more minutes? 
Jesus Christ does divine things humanly. Jesus Christ does human things divinely. Jesus Christ is an intermittently human and divine. He's concurrently human and divine. So th this is some of the stuff we're going to talk about next week. Are the tears of Jesus the tears of God? To know the love of Jesus, is that the love of God? Is the heartbreak of Jesus the heartbreak of God? Does Jesus manifest authentic human responses to God and other humans in the world? Right? Does Jesus give us a, a way to be authentically human? And in being authentically human, do we move toward image of God rather than away? If Jesus is at one and the same time fully God and fully man, that means for you to move in and to be conformed to him as a fully human person is the exact same thing as what it means to you to be conformed and returned to an authentic image of God. So you don't move deeper into your humanity and further away from the image of God. You move further into your humanity and it's the exact same direction as your imago dei-ness. So let me just, let me say this. It's precisely as the fully human son of God that the eternal word is image of God. So when scripture says Jesus is the image of God, it doesn't mean, well, you mean before the incarnation. Well, you wouldn't call the eternal second person of the Trinity the image of God, right? It's after, right? It's this one, the incarnate word. In him, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily, right? He's not a perspective on God. He's the whole fullness of God. Um, and so we'll, we'll get into that. Let me, let me just end with this. When, we, when, when the church, and this is one of the ways in which modernity, evangelicals, they, they whiff on the gospel, is we're, we're, we become so dainty to, to, to preach that because it's, <laughs> it's an awesome thing to say, right? It's an awesome mantle. Again, I'm at Moody. Our missions department, for instance, is now... I love but Moody would be so mad at me if they heard me. Uh, I don't mean it like that, but we've moved from a missions department to cross-cultural communication. That's not what missions is. It's, we're not just go into the world dialoguing about perspectives on God. That's not what missions is. We've become very afraid to proclaim the gospel. Very, very afraid. So um, we want to make sure that we're not saying Jesus is a perspective on God the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. If Jesus is a perspective on God, what we're really saying is God is a grand comprehensive reality behind the back of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is a word of God, a truth of God, right? That you might be able to use to get over him and behind his back to a grand God. And there are probably many ways of access to that God. So as soon as you diminish the lordship and the, and the godness, the Yahwehness of Jesus Christ, and you go into some like... Um, Unitarianism, God is just a singular God. Do any, of you, do any of you come from the East Coast of America? Unitarian, right? You know Unitarian churches used to be Christian. You know the thing that goes right after that all the time, Unitarian Universalist. Why? Because as soon as you say Jesus Christ is a, is a perspective on God, you go right to Universalism, right? He's a perspective on God to a grander, more comprehensive God behind his back. And he's swell, but he's not God with us. You go right there, you the whole thing's gone. Jesus Christ is the gospel. So we gotta stop. That's good for a day.
So let's, um, let's pick up, we'll pick up right here. We'll do, a, we'll do a couple of this, but then I want to get right into talking about what, is it, what does it mean to be human? Does Jesus Christ reveal humanity to us? 